Hello everyone and welcome to From Oil to Soil, The Shift with Isadora Spearwoman. Here at From Oil to Soil, we are reclaiming the discussion by reframing the discussion. For more information, visit www.o2soil.org. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of From Oil to Soil, The Shift. I'm your host, Isadora Spearwoman, and today we have a very special guest joining us. Her name is Juliana Birnbaum, and she is the director of the Sustainable Revolution Project, an initiative of the Permaculture Research Institution. Juliana is skilled in multiple languages and has been trained in post-colonial anthropology. She has lived and worked in the US, Europe, Japan, Nepal, Costa Rica, and Brazil, focusing on ecological communities, social and environmental justice, regenerative design, holistic health, and solutions to the climate crisis. Juliana is the co-author of Sustainable Revolution, and CBD, A Patient's Guide to Medicinal Cannabis, which has sold over 60,000 copies worldwide and been translated into seven languages. Juliana is currently doing research, editing, and writing for one of Paul Hawkins' latest books, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. We're so excited to welcome Juliana to our podcast today. You can find out more about her by visiting www.cultureofpermaculture.org. The edge is a place where change can happen more quickly. Um, There's more biodiversity in natural edges between systems. Um, That's the place where synergy can happen because there's um, more more diversity and diversity brings life and brings innovation. So we're super excited and we're so excited to have you here as our interviewee. I mean, just reading your bio, it was amazing just the diversity of what you have experienced in your life, you know, from being a doula to an activist to an author. Um, I would love to just hear in your own words, like how would you describe your passion, your mission, and the work that you do in the world? Mm, That's, um, you know, I was realizing before we were going to speak that I am really more comfortable being in your role because I'm really a writer. You know, I'm a researcher, a kind of journalist. I come from an anthropology, a post-colonial anthropology background. So, that really is about bringing attention to the histories of imperialism and colonization that have led to the, the current society and the, inequity, the inequities, especially financial. I come from that background and then I really think of myself as a mother and my, my work being inspired by becoming a mother um, and coming from a feminist perspective too. Yeah, because educating women is a huge solution. It's like one of the top ones um, in drawdown. Absolutely. Yeah. Because when women are are educated, they're able to contribute to 
the solutions themselves. So they become more active in their communities and in um, countries where women have been empowered and in leadership, um, the solutions to the climate crisis are happening very quickly. As a doula and assistant midwife and going through that experience of of a woman's transition, of, of a woman facing with courage this very terrifying precipice and edge. So anyway, I think the perspective that I'm ending up coming from is something that's called planetary health. And planetary health is, is about those interconnections between, between ecosystems and human systems and how the disruption there has led to so many of the crises that we're facing now. So many things are, <laughs> what a time to be talking, you know, just right. to be talking to each other. I'm essentially a, a writer and a, um, a researcher, so I'm used to asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into solutions, I would love to give the audience just kind of a little bit more of your background, maybe even from like childhood. So I'd love to know, like, what was that spark that led you on the path you're on now? Well, I'm from the Hudson Valley of New York. And so my first memories of nature are there. But I was really raised, you know, in the 80s. I'm a Generation X person. And so I didn't grow up in, um, in an eco-village. I can say that, <laughs> you know. I think there was something that kind of drew me towards something different. Um, and I, I ended up attending Middlebury College in Vermont, um, and spending a lot more time outdoors and in nature and starting to do more camping. But I was always interested in languages and good at learning languages and ended up studying to be able to teach English as a second language abroad, working directly with a Nepali-led organization and a, women's, uh, a women-led um, organization. And so that really led me to question progress and development and think about what we had to learn from these traditional cultures who knew how to live in a sustainable way with their environment. Empowering indigenous people um, and empowering indigenous knowledge is key to regeneration, is key to the story, the new story going forward. And that's what I was trying to get at with the title sustainable revolution, evolution, re-evolution. It's the idea that um, our evolution forward involves a looking back and honoring. What I'm working on now that I'm most excited about is, is this regeneration project, with, um, which is Paul Hawkins' um, new project, following up on Drawdown, with a bit more of a focus on the, whole, the holistic systems, um, the food peace, food, and agriculture as they relate to the climate crisis, and then also bringing in um, feminist um, perspective and Black, Latinx cultures coming from Indigenous empowerment. All of those pieces are, are being woven into this, um, this next iteration, which is called Regeneration. For those who don't know, Paul Hawken is the founder of Project Drawdown and is a dedicated environmentalist, entrepreneur, author, and activist. (music) 
what a time to be doing all that. I'm curious, when did you first become aware of climate change as a topic of conversation? And at the time, what was the conversation like? Was there any talk of solutions? Like, what's your kind of first memory of hearing even the word climate change? It's such an overwhelming thing to become aware of. And I'm watching this generational piece happening now with my own daughters about that age that I was when I first understood even what global warming was. And to see... I never would have imagined that over just one generation that the acceleration of the climate crisis could could be uh, could be so dramatic. Now this generation, my daughter's generation is being faced with this incredibly heavy burden of being of inheriting this world with so many interlocking crises. And so I think one of the most important things that we can do is to to empower and to to help that generation be able to face what they're going to be facing and um, to build resilience on so many levels. Yeah, so let's let's dive into solutions. So the, the main focus for today is permaculture design, but I know that you have a bunch of other solutions and inspirations. So I'd just love to pretty much open it up and we can discuss them and yeah, for people to hear, you know, what, what is occurring, what are the solutions and what can we what can we all learn and take away? Well, what I've been working on as part of Paul Hawkins team. Uh, at, at the Regeneration Project, which people can find out um, more about. Regeneration.org is um, is the, the current site where you can sign up to get updates when the book is published. But the beauty of that, that way of looking at the solutions is in the interconnectivity. And I love regeneration, regenerative design as the language that's being used going forward. Permaculture is very deeply interwoven into into regeneration mm-hmm. um, all of these solutions are so I- interconnected um, but regeneration is is a term for this global movement that's pioneering solutions to the climate crisis it started kind of at the edge so lately I've um, I've been really interested in that permaculture principle the the edge effect the edge is very fertile and we're in this fertile time of transition and edge right now as a culture. Um, but the edge is a place where change can happen more quickly. Um, there's more biodiversity um, in natural edges between systems. Um, that's the place where synergy can happen because there's um, more, more diversity and diversity brings life and brings innovation. Um, so regenerative design started out in the 70s as permaculture, this concept from Australia. These two teachers named David Holmgren and Bill Mollison started studying um, what was then called perennial agriculture practices. Um, and those were traditional practices of growing food in usually in, involving agroforestry. So involving practices where the the there were polyculture food crops grown in the forest rather than clearing the forest and so ecosystems and agriculture can 
thrive together. They don't have to be at odds with each other the way that they are in the, in the industrial agricultural system, right? Mm-hmm. So um, from what they started back in, in Australia has now grown to be much more mainstream. Um, so for example, the Green New Deal, um, which um, was a major part of Bernie Sanders' platform. And I, from what I understand, um, President-elect Joe Biden is going to be bringing a lot of those um, of the tenets of the Green New Deal into his climate plan. Um, so it's really something, the regenerative agriculture is becoming something that's um, being talked about on the top levels of policy. Agroforestry is something that, um, that, again, like some of the other solutions that we talked about, it can occur at all different spatial scales. It can be um, a, a small field or um, an entire farm or an entire forest that is planted in this way. Um, and the idea is for there to be um, diversification um, as part of the, the strategy of the way that these strata are planted. So um, coffee production, shade-grown coffee, is one of the best examples of how um, agroforestry can work where um, there can be the integration of the forest with the growing um, of this crop. And the benefits of agroforestry are about the interactions, again, between the systems. So um, interactions between trees, shrubs, crops, uh, animals, and agroforestry is about trying to optimize the, the, um, the positive interactions, like creating more, like we, we use the word synergy, um, or more of that edge effect where our biodiversity and more health. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my focus has mainly been on permaculture, eco-villages, and regenerative design sites um, in all different parts of the world. I was able to visit 15 out of the 60 sites that are featured in Sustainable Revolution. Um, and the other 45 were, it ended up being a huge volunteer-driven project. It was volunteer contributors from around the world, including amazing luminaries like Mandana Shiva and Charles Eisenstein and um, and Paul Hawken. So it ended up being kind of a crowdsourced um, piece that was a, about how, how do we show the emergence of these solutions in all of these um, very diverse ecosystems and cultures and nations around the world. I know today you that you also wanted to focus on as a drawdown solution the solution of multi-strata agroforestry. Yes, and um, a, a really good case study that relates to to that came from Zimbabwe in Africa in a small village that in the early 90s the spring which served the village literally dried up, and um, there the villagers had to walk. Um, a long distance to be able to get water. And it was really the culmination of a growing crisis that was affecting all of the villages in that area related to colonial occupation and years of violence. Um, it had been clear cut. And then that this was um, combined with overgrazing had basically destroyed the landscape and it was turning almost into a desert. Um, and it was causing 
um, hunger, malnutrition, um, erosion that would cause um, rainwater to pour down the hills and to um, cover the homes with silt. So um, it was really a crisis moment for this village. And they decided to, um, the village elders met, and they decided that that permaculture was really in line with their traditional spiritual beliefs and that they wanted to use that system to transform their village. Mm -hmm. So um, today the landscape has been transformed and it's, um, it's, it was able to restore the, the spring. Um, so water can be restored through these agroforestry practices. Um, they planted indigenous trees um, they started harvesting rainwater from rooftops and um, used swales to control erosion and vetiver grass um, to ensure that the water in the wet season would be infiltrated into the soil um, and then gradually released into the groundwater throughout the year. So um, that combined with the restoration of the forest uh, now allows the springs to be able to run continuously. Mm -hmm. And that also led to uh, a whole bunch of other changes in the village. It was really a system-wide change. Um, they developed this participatory decision-making structure. They created programs for women, conflict resolution systems, preschools. Um, so they, they really transformed from the e ecologies, economies, um, and, and their social system together. So that's really what permaculture is about. It's, um, it's a set of ethics that are very simple. Um, so people care, earth care, and fair share of the resources are the ethics at the center. I love the example that you gave. Is it Zimbabwe? Yes. Yeah, Zimbabwe. Because it's you called the Chikukwa Project, the Chikukwa Project in Zimbabwe. You see how once the earth is restored, then the, the, the systems restore. And so I love like that example, something really spoke to me of just like, once they came together and the earth was restored, then like all these social projects and, and health and everything came, came to life. And the connection between soil and uh, carbon sequestration um, and ecosystem health and climate. Uh, climate health. After the Rodney King verdict in LA um, in the early 90s, there were protests that were kind of similar to the ones happening this year against police brutality that became social unrest that turned into riots. And following the chaos of that time, this Eco Village was born, and um, it's one of the most successful urban eco villages in California, for sure, or in um, or in America. A founding group bought a couple of these um, apartment blocks that were in disrepair, and they started eco retrofitting them. Um, they rented to individuals, and then slowly over time, they were able to form a limited equity housing cooperative so that members could own their own homes. They uh, created a rainwater harvesting system on the rooftops, permeable sidewalks that allow for rainwater to go back into the ground rather than cause runoff and erosion, pollute waterways. 
and they had a beautiful courtyard with a garden and hundreds of vegetables and fruits, chickens integrated, honeybees on the roof. And this is all, you know, a couple miles from downtown LA. And they also encourage um, bike culture and biking. So they have storage for bikes and a rent discount for no car households. So, you know, they, eco-villages can be a way that cultural change is seeded it can be a pioneering force, I think, for the, the change that we need to be taking up as a mainstream society. I'm really seeing it come from these edges and then moving towards the, the mainstream. Right. And that's what, gives me, that's what gives me hope. Within the problem, the solution exists and wants to emerge. So I have a few questions to wrap up. This was amazing we have so much to think about and simmer on now if you imagine that you were a child today say 10 or 11 what story would you want to hear about the state of the climate today well i would want to i would want to hear that there are solutions because um i mean my daughters have have been going through these last four years of every beginning of the school year being impacted by these intense wildfires um, that are um, making it impossible to breathe, making us fear for even um, our safety where we live. Um, and there, the, the idea of climate crisis has gone from a conceptual idea to a very experiential experiential process for all of us you know it's been something that it's impossible to ignore anymore so my daughters asked me there was this moment where they asked me well mommy what do we do about the fires what can we do and so that that's the question that as the mother makes you okay I need to have an answer I need to know what um, what it is that we can do and um, I started focusing on studying a, a little bit about indigenous fire management practices and part of the history of why these fires are, are happening so intensely right now in California. And it goes back to the idea that when the first settlers came to, first white settlers came into California, they thought that they were looking at a landscape that was wild but they were actually looking at a landscape that was very carefully tended by the native people who lived here. Mm -hmm. And part of their tending of the landscape was their understanding of fire ecologies. And they used very carefully controlled and very carefully seasonally timed with the rains, burns that would help to actually regenerate and restore um, the life of the soil um, and um, avoided the catastrophic type of fires and the buildup of fuel that contributes to these catastrophic fires that we're experiencing today. Um, so those are the stories that, um, that I, that I want to tell my daughters, the stories of, um, of empowering um, those groups and um, of integrating that wisdom into a, a much larger global cultural shift right and i think that's beautiful because you're you're instilling and you're letting them know the the severity of the situation and the reasons for hope 
Last question for you is, if you had to leave us with a message and just a few lines, what would you like the world to hear about climate solutions? That regeneration is emerging. It's like a natural antibody or immune response that the the earth is having to the destruction of its its ecosystems. It's this emerging network of solutions that um, is arising uh, in response to our crisis. But to do what you can to find where you have agency, which is in community through your through your temple or church or school or company or organization. And only um, only we can know that of what our our individual gifts and path is. Where is that where's that place that you can have the most impact and you can make the most change? Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. For more information, visit www.o2soil.org. The following tracks were used as background music in this episode. Cello Duet No. 1 by Chief Boima and two tracks by Dream Heaven. Audio production by Eamon Durkin. This is an offering from our hearts for the earth. We hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and family. Mm -hmm.